Lesson 11 for June 6 to 12, The Kingdom of God. Sabbath afternoon, June 6. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Jesus. We thank you what it means to us that there is salvation available for each one of us. And as we look this week at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to more fully understand that. In Jesus' dear name, amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 13, verse 29. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Let's read that again. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Luke 13, verse 29. The kingdom of God is a major theme and a significant priority in the teachings of Jesus. The phrase occurs nearly 50 times in Matthew, 16 times in Mark, about 40 times in Luke, and three times in John. Wherever it appears, be it in the Lord's Prayer or in the Sermon on the Mount or in Jesus' other preaching and parables, the kingdom of God is an expression of what God had done in history for the human race as he deals with the problem of sin and brings the great controversy with Satan to an ultimate and decisive end. The kingdom of God is unlike any kingdom the world has ever known, and that's because it's not a worldly kingdom. Reading from page 36 in the book The Ministry of Healing, the kingdom of God comes not from outward show. It comes through the gentleness of the inspiration of his word, through the inward working of his spirit, the fellowship of the soul with him who is its life. The greatest manifestation of its power is seen in human nature, brought to the perfection of the character of Christ. End of quote. This week we'll focus on this theme, especially as it appears in Luke. Sunday, June 7, Characteristics of the Kingdom of God, Part 1 The Gospels are replete with references to the Kingdom of God, all cumulatively testifying that a new order has been inaugurated in and through Jesus. Question. What does Luke 11 verse 2 say about the Kingdom of God? Whose Kingdom is it? And why is that so important? Luke 11, verse 2, reads, So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To say that this kingdom is God's is not just saying the obvious, but is rather affirming that the kingdom of God is neither a philosophic notion nor an ethical edifice. It is not a social gospel proclaiming bread and water for the hungry or equality and justice for the politically oppressed. It transcends all human goodness and moral action and finds its locus in the sovereign activity of God in the incarnate Son, who came preaching the good news of the kingdom, as we read in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 and 44. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him. 
and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, and also in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. What does Luke 1, verses 32 to 33, teach about who inaugurated the kingdom of God and what its final result will be? Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The passage is of utmost importance for two reasons. First, the Messiah anticipated in the Old Testament is none other than Jesus, the Son of the Highest. Second, of his kingdom there will be no end. This means that through his incarnation, death and resurrection, Jesus vanquished Satan's challenge to God's sovereignty and established for eternity God's kingdom. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. Revelation 11:15. In the clash between Christ and Satan, Satan claimed victory after the fall of Adam and Eve. But the mission of Jesus proved the falsity of Satan's claims. He defeated Satan at every turn, and with his death and resurrection, Christ has assured the entire cosmos that the kingdom of God has arrived. So to finish today, how can we live in a way that reflects the reality of the kingdom of God. Most important, how can we reflect that reality in our own lives? What should be different about how we, as citizens of God's kingdom, live now? Monday, June 8, Characteristics of the Kingdom of God, Part 2 Question. What do the following texts teach us about what citizenship in the Kingdom of God is about? First of all, we look at Luke chapter 18, verses 16 to 30. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the Kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God! For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. And Luke chapter 12, verse 31 to 33, But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves with money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth corrupts. And Luke chapter 9, verses 59 to 62. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Entry into the kingdom of God is not dependent on one's status or position, or one's riches, or the lack thereof. Luke, along with other gospel writers, points out that one must come to Jesus with an attitude of uncompromised surrender, absolute dependency, and childlike trust. These are traits of those who have entered the kingdom of God. They must be willing to give up everything if need be, for whatever they would not want to give up would be something that, in a sense, not only competes with Jesus, but in fact wins. Jesus and his claim on our life, on every aspect of our life, takes top priority. This makes sense because, after all, it's only through him that we exist to begin with. Thus, of course, he should have our complete allegiance. Read again Luke 18, verses 29 to 30. What is Jesus saying to us, and what is he promising? Beginning at verse 29. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. To have to leave parents, spouse, even children for the kingdom of God? That's a demanding commitment, is it not? 
Jesus is not saying that these actions are required of all believers, but that if one were called to leave these things for the sake of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God would be worth it. So to finish today, dwell on Jesus' words about letting the dead bury the dead. What important truth is he expressing here about not making excuses to keep from following him when the call comes, no matter how valid those excuses might seem? Tuesday, June 9, the kingdom of God, already, not yet. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. In his first public proclamation at Nazareth in Luke 4, Jesus affirmed that through him that day, Isaiah's messianic prophecy of the kingdom and its redeeming ministry had been inaugurated. Let's read that in Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke records another saying that attests the kingdom's present reality. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom would come, Jesus answered them that the kingdom of God is within you, in Luke 17.21. Other translations suggest that the kingdom is in your midst. That is to say, with the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom has already come, with its components to include healing the sick, as he showed in Luke 9.11, preaching the gospel, as in Luke 4.16-19, forgiving sins, as in Luke 7 and 19, and crushing the forces of evil, as he showed in Luke 11. Thus, Jesus made the kingdom a present reality within the individual, transforming the person to be like him. The kingdom of God is also seen amid the community of believers, a revelation of righteousness and salvation. This present aspect is also known as the kingdom of God's grace that is now being established as day-by-day -day hearts that have been full of sin and rebellion yield to the sovereignty of his love. That last sentence from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 108. While the already aspect has settled the finality of the kingdom, that is, the defeat of sin and Satan and Jesus' victory in the great controversy, the not-yet aspect looks forward to the physical end of evil and the establishment of the new earth, as in page 108 from the same book. 
the full establishment of the kingdom of his glory will not take place until the second coming of Christ to this world. Question. What do these texts teach about the kingdom of God at the end of the age? First of all, Luke 17, verse 23 and 24. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under the heavens shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. And Luke 21, verses 5 through to 36. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and... Let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for, from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to appear, look up and lift up your heads, because... Your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer 
is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always, that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Our world, and the state of our world, the turmoil, sorrow, and trouble in it, certainly reflect the words that Jesus expressed here. Though some argue that the pain and suffering in this world mean God doesn't exist, we could reply that, given what Jesus warned us about almost 2,000 years ago, the state of our world helps prove not only God's existence, but the truth of the Bible itself. If the world were paradise now, Jesus' words would be false. Only at the end will the kingdom of God in all its fullness be established. Until then, we have to endure. Wednesday, June 10, The Kingdom and the Second Coming of Christ When Jesus spoke of the Kingdom of God, he spoke of two certainties. One, God's activity through Christ in history to save humanity from sin. And two, God's closure of history by restoring the saved to his original plan to live with him forever in the earth made new as we read in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God. The first, as already noted, has arrived in the mission and ministry of Christ. In him we are already in the kingdom of grace, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoptions, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. The second part, 
The gathering of the saved in the kingdom of glory is the future hope that those in Christ await. As we read in Ephesians 1 verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And in Titus 2 verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament link that historical moment when the faithful will inherit the kingdom of glory to the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is the final culmination of the good news that Jesus came to proclaim when he came the first time. The same Jesus who defeated sin and Satan on Calvary is soon to return to begin the process that will eradicate evil and purify this earth from the tragedy that Satan inflicted on God's creation. Question. Read Luke chapter 21 verses 34 to 36. In your own words, summarize the basic message. As you do, look at your life and ask yourself how these words apply to you. What do you need to do in order to make sure that you are following what Jesus tells us here? Luke 21, verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. As we await the return of Jesus, we are called to watch and pray always, that you may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Those who have experienced the kingdom of grace must wait, watch, and pray for the kingdom of glory. Between the one and the other, between the already and the not yet, the believers are to be occupied with ministry and mission, with living and hoping, with nurture and witness. The anticipation of the second coming demands the sanctification of our lives, now and here. Thursday, June 11, Witnesses Question. Read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. What important truths about the kingdom of God are being expressed here? Beginning at verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The kingdom of God was foremost in the mind of Luke when he wrote a sequel to his gospel, in the form of a brief history of the early church. In the opening lines of that historical account, the book of Acts, Luke states three fundamental truths regarding the kingdom of God. First, be sure that Jesus will come again. For forty days between his resurrection and ascension, the Lord continued to teach what he had taught the disciples before his crucifixions, things pertaining to the kingdom of God, as it said in verse 3. The mighty events of the cross and the resurrection had not changed anything in the teaching of Jesus in regard to the kingdom. If anything, for forty days the risen Jesus continued to impress on the disciples the reality of the kingdom. Second, be waiting for Jesus to come again in God's own time. After his resurrection, Jesus' disciples asked a serious and anxious question in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus did not answer the question, but corrected the disciples' perspective. God must always be God, to probe his mind, to predict the preciseness of his plans— to penetrate his secrets is not the task of flesh and blood. He knows when the kingdom of glory should come, and he will bring it to pass in his own time, as we read in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And then in Matthew 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Just as when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4.4, 4, he sent his Son to inaugurate the kingdom of grace. Third, be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus. Christ redirected the disciples from speculation about what is not known, when the kingdom of glory will come, to what is known and must be done. The time of the second coming is not revealed, but we are called upon to wait for that precious glorious day and to occupy till then, as it says in Luke 19.13. This means that we should be involved in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to, as it says in Acts 1.8, the end of the earth. That is our responsibility, not our, in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit promised to be poured out on all those who shall be witnesses to what they have seen and heard, as we've just read in verses 4 to 8. So to finish today, these faithful followers of Jesus still had some big misconceptions about the nature of Christ's work, and yet the Lord was using them anyway. 
what message might there be for us about not needing to fully understand everything in order to still be used by God? Friday, June 12, from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 8, we read, Of the poor in spirit, Jesus says, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom is not, as Christ's hearers had hoped, a temporal and earthly dominion. Christ was opening to men the spiritual kingdom of his love, his grace, his righteousness. The ensign of the Messiah's reign is distinguished by the likeness of the Son of Man. His subjects are the poor in spirit, the meek, the persecuted for righteousness' sake. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And from Testimonies for the Church, volume 2, pages 355 and 356, We are now in God's workshop. Many of us are rough stones from the quarry. But as we lay hold upon the truth of God, its influence affects us. It elevates us and removes from us every imperfection and sin of whatever nature. Thus, we are prepared to see the King in his beauty and finally to unite with the pure and heavenly angels in the kingdom of glory. It is here that this work is to be accomplished for us, here that our bodies and spirits are to be fitted for immortality. And that brings us to our discussion questions today. There are two. One, physicist Steven Weinberg, talking about the cosmos, famously or infamously wrote, The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. His words made quite a stir, and he eventually tried to soften what he said. Some, though, didn't see any reason for the controversy about the universe not having a point. Why should it have a point? asked Harvard astronomer Martha Geller about the universe. What's the point? It's just a physical system. What point is there? I've always been puzzled by that statement. The universe, just a system, and a pointless one at that? As a Christian, awaiting the second coming of Jesus and the full and complete establishment of the kingdom of God, how would you respond to the ideas behind these statements? And question number two. Every generation of Christians has expected Jesus to return in their time, and some pastors and evangelists have set specific dates, but each has failed. What is wrong with time-setting? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Fighting with Shadows and it's one of those ones that's called Part One and it's from Abba in Mongolia. Abba, a young man living in northern Mongolia, felt powerless to change the downward spiral of his life. Then his friend introduced him to God. Here he shares his personal testimony. 
Before I became a Christian, I lived a really worldly life. I drank, I smoked, and I stole things. I never thought about whether what I did was good or bad. It was just part of me. I did it naturally. One time my friends and I were drinking and I got drunk long before they did. I lost consciousness and when I awoke, I realized I was alone. I stumbled out of the house in search of my friends. I found them in one of my friends' houses. "'Why did you leave me?' I demanded angrily. "'You were asleep,' one said. "'We couldn't awaken you.' They gave me another drink. I felt myself falling backwards and everything turned black. I awoke in the police station, naked and cold. My arm was bloody and my back was sore. I didn't know what had happened.' The police officer told me that I had been arrested for disturbing the peace. He said that I had been shouting and threatening people, and that I had broken several people's windows with my fist. That explained the bloody arm. A man with the police officer said I had banged on his door and threatened him. I did not remember any of this. The police officer gave me my clothes and I dressed, but my shoes were missing. When I asked for my shoes, he told me I had not been wearing shoes when I was arrested. A woman came into the police station to file a complaint against me. She said that I had broken windows in her house. I apologised and told her I didn't know I had done this. I wanted to see the broken windows for myself, so the police officer took me to her home. Under one broken window lay one of my shoes. Then I went to the other house with broken windows and found my other shoe. I knew that I was guilty. The owner of the house said that I had threatened to kill everyone in the house. Someone else told me that I had knocked on a door, and when I saw my own shadow reflected in the glass, I started fighting with it. When a man came out to investigate the noise, I started fighting with him. He escaped and called the police. When the police officer came, I started fighting with him as well. It seemed I was listening to the stories of a man possessed with a devil. I paid my fine and agreed to replace the broken windows. I even promised that I would never drink again. But three days later I was drunk. It seemed that I could not stop drinking. I realized the difficulties I was making for my mother, with whom I lived. I worked, but instead of giving her money for food, I bought alcohol. This story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story, and I hope it has a better ending. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>